Welcome to Near Death Experience Podcast. I'm Chaz Hathaway. We're going to take a little bit different approach today, but we will still be sharing some near-death experiences. Uh, we're going to start with a comment slash question from a listener, which I think is a really good one and one that I was really excited to get, actually, because of the content. And then we'll go into details of the answer to that question. Good afternoon. My name is Vincent Belt, and um, I'm just sharing my impressions of your podcast. Um, I've been on a spiritual journey for the last 40-plus years, and my first um, excursion outside of the kind of mainstream Protestant mindset was with Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. After Life. Um, and I've kind of been reintroduced to uh, some other uh, information on near-death experiences and really love your, your podcast. Uh, I, I really think it's a central element in kind of an overall mystical experience, everything from yogic traditions to shamanic to uh, extraterrestrial sometimes encounters to visions, angels. I think near-death experiences go under that, and it's essential for those people, I believe, in understanding near-death experiences, especially those people who come from a scientific, materialistic, atheistic background to be able to shatter that paradigm of constrictive thought and to realize there is a much greater reality than just can be contained within the brain in terms of that which is aware of consciousness. What you did mention to me that was very profound, but I want to find the link to it, uh, is your information about different musical sounds, songs, symphonies that they heard while in the afterlife. And if you can uh, share that with me, and I've subscribed to your podcast, and um, I'm going back and listening to many of the podcasts. I haven't listened to all, but I've listened to a lot of them. So um, I'm, I appreciate what you're doing, and I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you, Vincent, for your call. Uh, it means a lot to me. And uh, in answer to your question, you know, Vincent did leave uh, leave an email for me to contact him back, and I will, but I thought, I bet there's more people that are curious about this. So I'm going to answer the question in this episode of everything that I am aware of, of uh, music that people have either created based on what they heard in heaven or that they heard that they said, that sounds like the music I heard in heaven. And there aren't a lot of these, but there are a few, and I think they're worth sharing. Uh, the first is from the experience of Lonnie Leary. Now, if you go back uh, in our archives, we have her experience not too long ago. I think it was a couple of weeks ago or something. Lana, Lonnie Leary's 
experience. You can hear whole, her whole experience. But I'm going to share a piece of an interview that she did with um, Bob Olson for his podcast, Afterlife TV, which also has many near-death experience uh, things, among, among other aspects of, of the afterlife in his podcast. But this is a sample from uh, his podcast where he interviewed Lonnie Leary because he asked her a little bit more about this. And then right after the portion where she talks about the music that she heard, I'm going to share a sample of that music as I've found it uh, on the internet. Well, I was going for a routine um, dental procedure, and um, I was uh, almost 29 years old, happily married, and had a beautiful um, <clears throat> two-and-a-half-year-old baby, and just took myself to the dentist for a regular procedure, and I was in the dentist chair and given nitrous oxide, laughing gas, yep. and uh, the first... the First thing I knew, I was lying back in the dentist chair, and the next thing I knew, I was up in the corner of the room looking down at my inert body, and I felt no fear. I felt no anxiety, um, and as I looked at my body, I really felt a fondness for it. I, I knew this body, but I knew that I was not that body. And um, I felt no, uh, I felt a, an old familiarity with it, but as though it was ready to be tossed off and go to the Salvation Army. Wow! It was well, it was well used and well loved. Huh. Um, but I didn't need it back. I didn't want it back. But the the dentist was frantically working on me, and I was trying to communicate. I was trying to talk to the dentist. The yeah. dentist didn't hear me, and um, I. I just looked at my body with kind of a, 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 a fond detachment. And I had no sense of time, so I don't know how long I was up there in the corner of the room. Yeah. But the next thing that I was aware of was that I was entering a tunnel, and my mother, who had been dead for 15 years, yeah. was right at the entrance to the tunnel with her arms out. Oh. And she was whole, and she was beautiful, vibrant, and uh, healed. She was healed. And that was really important because she did not die whole and vibrant and, um, you know, thriving in this way. Yeah. And I saw her and I knew it was her. And I went into her and um, I was not able to say goodbye um, when she died. She died suddenly and unexpectedly. And um, I communicated with her telepathically, so it was as though I thought and she received, yep. and she thought and I received. I heard it inside of this being, whatever this I was now, right. and I said to her, I love you, and she said, I know, in such a way that the energy went around me like her arms, and I said, I miss you, and she said, I know. <clears throat> and what I knew, what I knew in that communication was that all those things every single day of my life that I had wanted to tell her or I had wanted to ask her, I already had. What I knew is that she had always been with me and there had never been any separation between us. And I knew that she knew that I loved her 
And all those years I had felt so guilty that I had not been able to say goodbye. And I was 13 years old and a typical teenager, you know, wanting distance and independence. And um, I had felt so guilty as though um, really there was a part of my 13-year-old brain that uh, felt so um, just, oh, despair doesn't even come close to it. But as though uh, she had died believing that her only daughter didn't love her because I had told her that. So in this moment of communication, that was healed. I didn't touch it. I yeah. just, yeah. Was there a smell I, to it? Was there a smell, I, an odor? No, you know, I didn't smell. I didn't, I didn't have that, that sense open yep. to me. Mm -hmm. yep. But I did hear. Right. And I heard this music that was just incredible. Um. And this is where you heard the music, or did the music continue throughout the whole thing? Um, I was, I, I would say I was aware of it in the tunnel. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. let's talk about that now. You got a, you found some music that r reminds yeah. you of it? Yes. Yeah, so so th that was an interesting story. My husband and I were going into one of those nature stores, and we we're walking in, and all of a sudden he turns to me and says, what is wrong with you? And I, I'm not feeling any distress. I said, what? what nothing. And he said, well, tear, big crocodile tears were rolling down my face. So I paused for a moment and I listened and I heard this music and it, it had just washed over me and, you know, triggered this response. Yeah. And I went up to the counter and I said, what is that music? And uh, she told me I bought it and I have been using it ever since for the past 30 years. Um, at, when I work with dying patients, when I'm doing some calming and healing exercises with them, and so, not surprisingly, the music is called Angels of Comfort. And now here is a sample of Angels of Comfort by Yasos.
Now, Yasos's music can easily be found by searching for his name, which is spelled I-A-S-O-S, and then that piece is called Angels of Comfort, and it goes on much longer than that. I will say about this piece also um, that in an interview that he had with someone, he talks about uh, the... uh, I don't remember the wording he used, but it was clearly some kind of spirit guide um, that basically communicated the music to him. So there may be more to this music than just happenstancing upon uh, heavenly music. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Yasos had his own near-death experience. But but lest you think that... uh, this is the only kind of music that can be heard in heaven, and I would suspect that even Yasos would say it, it doesn't measure up, but it's the closest I could get. Um, but uh, you'll find that people share different kinds of music in heaven as well. I'm going to now share with you an experience by someone who had a shared death experience at the death of his son, Um, He was at a very difficult time, and this story is from the uh, podcast called Snap Judgment. It's an NPR podcast. It is anything but a near-death experience type podcast. It's just really sharing interesting stories and so forth. Um, But when I came across this one, I'm like, hmm, I may have to share this one on my uh, own podcast here. So here is the experience of Stuart Sharp, who in his shared death experience heard music that he was told by the people there he would be allowed to remember. And, well, I'll let him tell the story. For our next story, we're cashing in all of our frequent fire miles in order to head off to London. Snap favorite Jonathan Gruber has a story. Stuart Sharp and his wife Joe ran a pub in the English countryside where he lived with his mom and daughter. On the eve of the birth of his first son, Stuart and his wife already had a name for the baby picked out. Ben. But things went badly during Ben's delivery. And when we got to the hospital, um, she was in labour, and the doctor was there. It was In those days, it was a very cold, frugal room and she was lying on a slab like a lamb to the slaughter. It was a very strange environment. Uh, The doctor was there, and suddenly he rushed past me out of the room, called the ambulance for the big centre in Leicester. Eventually, we managed to get her to the hospital in Leicester, and we didn't know at that point that Ben was already dead. Um, Inside of her? Yeah. She'd had a uterus rupture. When they did deliver Ben, they actually caused so much damage to her, she nearly died as well. So my wife was nearly dead, Ben was dead. It was devastating. Wow. What did you do? I didn't know what to do. Stuart buried Ben in a shoebox-sized grave. The night of the funeral... He went to bed and had a dream. A dream that would change his life.
and I was back at the graveside with Ben in the dream. I saw Ben rise from the coffin and sort of travel up towards the skies. And suddenly I started hearing this wonderful angelic music and then I heard these angels came down and spoke to me. And one of the angels said to me, Ben is safe now. And in these circumstances, we always leave somebody a gift. And the gift for you is you will remember everything. And I could hear every single note of this piece of music. I heard everything. Yeah, can I just quickly yeah. stop you here and ask you, are you religious? No. Stuart? No. Do you believe in God? Did you no, 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 no. What did you think was going no. on? I just thought there was some great spiritual power that was going to guide me to do what I was meant to do from Ben's death. The music in Stuart's mind was so persistent, so urgent, that he decided to do something dramatic. He decided he had to devote the rest of his life to getting this music written and recorded, no matter what the cost. That meant leaving his wife and daughter and moving to London, despite having no formal musical training or musical talent. He waited a year to break the news to his wife and mother. It did not go well. She said, uh, look, you need therapy after what you've gone through. I understand. You need to go and talk to someone. And I said... I'll give you six months' notice, and in six months to the day, I'm going to leave for London. Of course, they both thought, sure. <laughs> and they just shrugged it off. Yeah, six months. Every month, I would say, five months to go, four months to go, a month to go, and they still thought it was a joke. And I said, listen, I'm serious. And when it came to the day of going, and I got my little old Ford car and my squash bag, and I said, I'm going. And my wife was like, Absolutely. Because there's a lot of people listening to this right now who are saying to themselves, you just abandoned your family, man. Absolutely. I know that. I know that. I said to her, through this dream, I will make you extremely happy. We will travel the world together. The girls will go to places and see things and get an education they couldn't have dreamed of. That actually made it worse. Yeah, because it sounds like the things you have to say to yourself to do something like leave your family. Yeah. It sounds like an excuse. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I left for London on that day. What did it feel like when you got into that car and started driving towards London? I felt I was going to do what I was destined to do. I expected that the voices, the angels would tell me exactly what to do. So I had never been to London before. It was very miserable weather. I drove along this road, I just kept going round in circles, the traffic was very heavy. I pulled off the road and found a car park. And I just stopped in the car park. So well, I'll stay here. And it was a huge car park with garbage bins in the corner, so I parked in between the garbage bins and stayed there waiting for my next instruction. <laughs> and? I didn't get one. Stuart lived in his car, and Joe gave up waiting for him after six months. She divorced him. 
He stayed in London, waiting for the voices to tell him what to do. He sold his car, he moved onto the streets, but the voices said nothing. Stuart fell into despair and moved into a hostel for the homeless. He'd lost everything. Everything except the angelic music in his head. And then he walked by the window of a second-hand shop and saw a guitar. And I'd only got a few pounds, whatever it was, in my pocket. And I said, this is all I've got. Is it possible you could drop the price? A very nice lady said, not really. What do you want it for, anyway? I said, well, look, I'm going to compose a symphony and I need it to get the notes out so I can give it to someone else. And she eventually said, OK, you can have it. What would you do with it? I took it back to the hostel. I used to sit in this little, tiny little room, which was full of cockroaches next to the kitchen. Cockroaches crawl over me every night, just trying to figure out this guitar. So while I'm fiddling around with these notes, I start being able to pick out some of the melody line on the guitar. Yeah, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. Yeah, I couldn't write the notes down, but what I did, I went back to the Townsend's shop and I bought from them for a very few pence a very old tape recorder. And I took it back and started playing all the melodies and stuff into this tape recorder until I'd filled two hours of this tape, everything I could hear. And so I thought, well, now I've got something I can work with. One day, Stuart took his guitar and recorder and sat himself in front of the BBC studios close to the homeless shelter to try his luck at getting noticed. And while I was sitting there, quite a few people walked by and thought I was begging, but I wasn't. And one gentleman came by and he just looked at me and didn't say anything. He walked on and he stopped 50 metres later and turned around and came back and said, what are you doing with the guitar? Are you a busker? I said, no, no, I'm writing a symphony. Oh, you're a composer? I said, well, sort of. He said, well, have you got a score? I said, no, I can't write music. And he went, how are you going to write a symphony then? I said, because I've got it on tape and I can play little bits of it. He said, where are you living? And I said, well, I'm living rough, actually, and I'm living in a hostel for the homeless and just bumming around, really. I'm looking for the next stage in my development of this great story. He said, I'm a jazz musician. Look, why don't you come stay with me for a couple of hours? I'll take it back to my house. I've got a piano. Let me hear your melodies, and I'll see what I can do on the piano, so if I can extemporise it for you. So I said, well, that's really kind of you, and he took me back to his house. His wife was absolutely furious. She said to him, are you going completely crazy? This guy could be a murderer. He's got a child, got a baby, and you're bringing him... Well, he was not going to stay long, just, just for a few hours. Just kindly make him a bit of soup or something. And I stayed there for six weeks. The first night, I started playing the melody, and he started feeling it on the piano. And in a couple of hours, what we had done on this piano, and I'm telling you, Jonathan, was phenomenal. The jazz musician was Anthony Wade. And yes, this is actually audio from those original recordings in his house back in 1982. By the end of those six weeks, Stuart and Anthony had pretty well scored the entire symphony. Anthony said it was so good, it could make Stuart rich and famous and should be played by the London Philharmonia Orchestra. That was the good news. 
my only advice to you is go out and make a fortune because you will have to pay for it all yourself. And and how much? Well, I mean, we're talking about over a million pounds. A million pounds. Because it's not just going to the Philharmonia Orchestra, as explained to me. You're going to need orchestrators. You're going to need arrangers. You're going to need the best studios in the world. You'll need a rehearsal orchestra. You'll need this, you'll need that, and you'll need the other. And before you do all that, we would have to work on it together to make an electronic version of it. And for that, you will need to hire a studio, you need to hire computers, and me will be very expensive, and so on and so forth. So here you were, at the cusp of realizing your dream. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Homeless Man, you're going to have to pay a million pounds to do it. What did you think when he said that to you? I was excited. You asked me to make a million pounds, and I'll go and make a million pounds. He started off by getting a job at the homeless center. Then he got various sales jobs working exclusively on commission, something for which he showed an uncanny ability. He spent years flipping houses for the local council, and then he started doing it for himself. Many houses, and 15 years later, he had saved one million pounds. Then I tracked Anthony Wade down, and I said to him, are you ready to go? He said, go where? The project. He couldn't quite work out what was going on, so I took my bank statement with me. I said, right, you gave me the answer of what to do. Here is the money. Let's go. And how long did it take to complete? It took five years working every single day to do an electronic version of the whole symphony. Once I got all that done, then I presented it to the conductor of the Philharmonia with the tape, with the score, please listen to this. And he was not too impressed because how could a homeless person with no musical ability write a score that would be good enough for the London Philharmonia Orchestra? And he said to me, it's not a question of money, Stuart. It's a question of credibility. The London Philharmonia Orchestra are not going to record basically rubbish. You hadn't even listened to it. You hadn't listened to it, no. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from him at midnight and he was crying on the phone. He said, Stuart, I have just listened to your tape. I have been blubbering for the last five minutes. It is wonderful. I cannot believe it. I'm so sorry I didn't listen to it before. The reason I didn't listen to it before was because I thought, how can I break the bad news to you after all you've gone through? But now I can see that with the London Philharmonia recording it, this will be one of the most magnificent things we've ever done. Stuart needed to find even more money. It needed to be scored again. The orchestra had to be booked years in advance. And then, one day, the conductor of one of the greatest orchestras in the world turned to Stuart and said, Now it is right for the London Philharmonia Orchestra. Okay, so the day comes of the recording. Describe the room to me. Was a very big room to enclose 80 musicians. It was a big recording studio in London, massive. Oh my God, is this really going to happen? It's the sound, they're all tuning their instruments. They're all tuning their instruments, and the hairs on the back of my neck are going standing up. So I don't don't know what to expect. I don't know whether it's going to be what I heard in my head or something else. When the moment came when the conductor stood before them... When the one came down... And as they started to play, it was exactly what I heard in my head. The trumpet call for the angels, the voices, the choir, because I had a big choir as well. I had a massive choir. It wasn't just an orchestra. It was a big choir. 
enjoying any of it. It was exactly going in sync, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, is that the orchestra doing it, or is that what is my head? It was so strange. And when they'd finished, suddenly I heard this noise, it was like applause. And the conductor said, Stuart, come over here. This ovation is for you. For me? It's hard to know if the musicians of the London Philharmonia were applauding for the music, or Stuart's journey, or both. Nevertheless, they gave him a standing ovation. Alan Wilson, the conductor of the London Philharmonia, is quoted as saying, I had to admit I was stunned. I've never seen any orchestra anywhere in the world give any composer an ovation like that before. Stuart's symphony has never been performed. It's never been distributed by a major record label, but he had achieved his goal. Stuart had gotten the music out of his head and recorded by one of the greatest orchestras in the world. What's the first thought that went the through your head? The first thought that went through my head, I can't wait to send this to my ex-wife. I can't wait to send it to her because it's so beautiful. I'm sure it won't hurt her because... And she knew the journey I'd had and I sent the CD to her and I got a call from her the next day. I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, Stuart, oh, I played your Angelus Symphony and I've had the windows open and I've played it full blast. I have to tell you, it is magnificent. And I cried. Let me ask you. You created a lovely family. You had a terrible tragedy, but your family was still intact. Then you had this dream that came to you that, frankly, could have been psychosis for all we know. If you had to do this all over again, would you do it the same way? I didn't have any choice. You've been given a gift, go and use it. So there's no choice for me. Was it worth it? I don't know. Thanks for sharing your story, Stuart. That piece was produced by Jonathan Gruber. He's the host of the amazing podcast, The State We're In. Distributed by WBEZ, I highly recommend it. That piece was edited by Anna Sussman with sound design by Pat and C.D. Miller. And though you hear samples of the music in the story there, you don't hear it very long. And so I'm going to share a bigger sample, which of course is again a sample, partly because of copyright and also because I um, think this is one of those pieces that's kind of like Handel's Messiah. It's like really long and there's different movements and, you know, all these different things. But the, the piece that is kind of the climax of the whole uh, musical work, uh, I will share a sample here from.
So again, that was the Angeli Symphony by Stuart Sharp. And I'm going to include links to these uh, YouTube videos and so forth in the show notes on neardeathexperiencepodcast.org. One more I'd like to share, and this is another one who had a near-death experience. This one, he had his own near-death experience and came back with the intent to write music like what he heard. Now, his name is Steve Roach, and though I do not have a copy of his near-death experience, I do have a couple of quotes from him. He had a bike crash, and in his experience, he says he heard the most intensely beautiful music you could ever imagine, and he decided to dedicate his life to recreating that exact sound. And the result, the music that he created, is called Structures from Silence. And uh, about that, he says, many people contact me after hearing my recordings to tell me that they've heard the exact same music during their near-death experiences. Now, um, before I share his music, I want to share uh, the experience of Giles Bedard, who, or Bedard, I'm not sure how to say that, um, because of, there's a connection between them, and let me read you his experience, and maybe it'll make more sense. So Giles Bedard uh, describes, all day long, I went in and out of a coma. About 2 a.m., the doctors came and put me back on my back to examine me. Then I saw a round light at the ceiling. I felt as if I were looking at the moon. Suddenly I couldn't see any walls. Then I saw myself from the ceiling. I was nine feet higher than my body, and I was looking down at the people around me. It was very strange. I had never experienced anything like it. I could see myself, the people around me, the doctors, the nurse, my family, but I felt no emotion. It was just like watching television. In the blink of an eye, my vision expanded and I went into a place like a cosmos where there were 12 people standing in a half circle. They were all pure white lights and they had no faces. Beyond them was a tunnel. I wasn't afraid. I somehow knew these people, although they weren't family or people I could recognize. It was as if they were waiting for me. I asked them what was happening, and they told me, You are not going to die. You are going back to earth. You have something to do. I asked them what it was, and as soon as I asked, it was as if I knew the answer. They said I would know what I had to do when the time came. At that moment, I could sense the future and realized I had the choice to do what I wanted to do. I felt pure peace. What I remembered most is the music I heard when I was out of my body. It was fascinating. It was hard to tell how long the experience lasted. It could have been five seconds or half an hour. When I came back to my body, it felt very small. But it was okay. I felt calm, very warm. When I came to around 5 a.m., I felt ready for a party. It was as if nothing had happened to me. I didn't remember the experience at the time, but a month after I left the hospital, I had another one. During the night, I had a sensation of falling into a tunnel. 
going into it. I knew I was about to die, but just before arriving at the end of the tunnel, I woke up. It was not a dream. It was real. And it was then that I remembered the earlier experience. After I left the hospital, I felt secure, as I were as if I were in a large protective bubble. I knew I could cross the street without looking and not be hurt. During my convalescence, I began to remember the special sound I had heard on the other side. It was slow and calm, like very deep breathing. At this period, I had a vision. I was with a sage in the mountains, and we were looking into a valley, and he said, you are going to bring this music to the people. Then one day, a few years later, I heard the special sound on an, al- on an album by Steve Roach, a composer of electronic music. I had always been interested in music. I played the guitar and performed in a small rock group with some friends, but after I discovered that album, I turned to electronic music. Later, in 1988, I met Roach at a New Age music conference. There I found out that as a motorcycle driver, he had had a near-death experience. He said that when he wrote music, he tried to recreate the music he heard when he was in the light. I kept the experience to myself for a long time because I didn't know who to tell and I didn't want to be considered a freak. I'm not afraid to talk about it now because people have heard about near-death experiences and it isn't as shocking. It happened to me and it changed my life. If people don't believe me, that's okay. I'm not a salesman for near-death experiences. I'm an ordinary guy. I'm into reality. The near-death experience was not a mystical experience. It was a major step that helped in my life. It opened a new dimension for me, a new way of thinking. It changed my relationships with other people, with friends, with people near me, because I realized that it's not other people who create your unhappiness. My near-death experience opened me to the possibilities of life. I know that I'm going to live a long time, but I'm not afraid of death now because I know what it is. People are afraid to die because they don't know what's there. But now I know that that life will continue after death. That's the experience of uh, Giles Bedard. And as you can see, he comes across Roach and comes across his music first and then meets him to find out about his near-death experience as well. So with that, I would like to share the uh, music of Steve Roach. And the music is called Structures from Silence.
Now you'll have to forgive me for the uh, sound quality on that last one. I had to play it out of my computer and record with the recorder, which of course causes some, you know, uh, funky sound loopy things that uh, um, created that kind of throb that uh, may or may not be in the original music. But uh, it gives you a little taste of what it's like, and I will, again, include links to the music in the uh, show notes. I've used some of these uh, pieces for meditation, and it's quite nice. I mean, really enjoyable meditation. I wish I could say that I have found more music by people who have had near-death experiences. Unfortunately, as yet, I have not. If I do, I will try to share them with you because, I mean, you know, it's, it's taken me a couple of years to find the anecdotes that I had, that, or ha- that I have, that uh, share something of what exactly, precisely, the music in heaven might sound like. Now, I can't claim this is what music sounds like in heaven. I don't know. But what we do have is samples from those who have been to the other side, and this was their experience, and it sounds like many people have have resonated with that, that have had near-death experiences. They said, hey, that's the music I heard too. And, and so it's something that uh, there is clearly that kind of music or something like it to be found in heaven. And as diverse a place as heaven is, or the spirit world, it'd probably be a, a clearer, more accurate term, um, as, as diverse as it is, I can imagine that there's every different kind of music there that communicates peace and love and contentment and joy and love again. Uh, So I thought those were very interesting and I thought I'd share them with you today. If you would like to contact the podcast, you can do so by emailing neardeathexperiencepodcast at gmail.com or by calling 970-NDE-CAST. If you feel so inclined, please leave a review on iTunes. What that will do is it will allow iTunes to see that people are listening and people are interested and interacting with it, and therefore it makes it easier for other people to find the show. Also, you can share it with a friend, somebody that might need a lift or just would be interested in the subject. So with that, thank you all of you again so much for listening. Thank you.